My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. My guest on today's podcast is none other than Frank Justra. Now, Frank has done so much stuff, I think I could probably spend the next hour just recounting it in this intro. He built Yorkton Securities into a mining financing powerhouse when he was in his 20s and 30s. He retired by the age of 40 to go on and launch Lionsgate Entertainment. He came back into the gold mining industry and helped build Gold Corp. He helped build Endeavor Financial and Endeavor Mining. And recently, he helped build Leah Gold, which was recently merged with Equinox Gold, Ross Beatty's deal. Frank has done so much stuff over the last 40 years, it's it's hard to really get a handle on it. That doesn't even begin to talk about his philanthropic efforts, which are enormous in their own right. They're an entire career just by themselves. Beyond that, he's interested in writing, in poetry, in music, in films, obviously. Many, many, many things. And of course, food is yet another passion. He also owns an award-winning olive oil company, Dominica Fiore, which is named after his mother. We get into all of that and more on today's podcast. We spend a lot of time talking about Frank's view on history, what he's learned from the Roman Empire, what he's learned from the French Revolution, and what that means for today. This has shaped Frank's view on investing, and particularly when it comes to gold investing. We talk about why he believes we're in the perfect storm for a gold market and what he's doing about it and how he's allocating his own money. We also talk about some advice for investors who are new to the space. This was by far the most diverse conversation that I have ever had as part of the Resource Insider podcast. I'm already heavily invested in gold. I've already done the research and I walked away having even more conviction than I've ever had before. So I'll warn you, Frank's belief in this issue is contagious. Frank has repeatedly been called a billionaire by the media, an accusation, which I'm not sure if it's an accusation or a compliment, an accusation that he has repeatedly denied, stating that he in fact gives away too much money to ever become a billionaire. And we get into that, how Frank donates his money, why he donates his money, and how those of you with a bit more money to kill can do it too. If you walk out of this podcast and you find yourself interested in gold, I highly recommend you check out Resource Insider. We've got a gold deal coming up, and if you're an accredited investor, it could be something you would find very, very interesting because that's how I'm allocating my capital into the gold space. This podcast is for anyone who is interested in business, in entrepreneurship, and investing or for anyone that just wants to hear an incredibly interesting and incredibly inspiring life story. So without further ado, let me please introduce Frank Justra from the Fiore Group. Frank, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jamie. So we are sitting here looking out of the ocean in your beautiful Vancouver home. And we're here to talk about 
mining, philanthropy, business, and what you're up to today. So in preparation for this uh, podcast, I always put together a few pages of questions for the, the interviewees. And I knew you were a busy guy, uh, but I don't think I quite appreciated the scope of it until I actually started putting the questions together and the different businesses you've been involved in. So we got a lot to cover today, but there's a few things that I really want to get to, uh, namely your views on gold and, and then some of the other businesses and charities and philanthropy that you're working on. But I think a great place to start, and I came to this reading your blog, is talking a little bit about history. You reference learning from history, reading history books, having that be one of your favorite subjects. What brought you into that, and what are you reading about today? Well, you know, history is more important than people believe, and um, it, it's important for a whole bunch of reasons, and specifically for people that are in the markets and look at, you know, at financial cycles and uh, economic cycles. History just tends to repeat itself, or as Mark Twain said, it rhymes. Uh, it might not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. And I, I recently wrote an article in my blog about, uh, it was titled, Nothing New Under the Sun, which was a... Uh, Came, that term came from the Bible. It was King, King Solomon, attributed to King Solomon some 3,000 years ago. And it was basically saying that the patterns of men repeat over and over again. That's 3,000 years ago. And I used that quote as a basis to write an article about the Roman Empire. And uh, I read two books, uh, reread two books recently that I'd read a while ago. One was um, Histories by uh, Suetoni- uh, by um, Tacitus, and the other one was The Twelve Caesars by Suetonius. These were both first century A.D. historians, and I found it fascinating that a lot of the things that they were saying in their day, you know, they were talking about things that were happening during their lifetimes, uh, you could apply to today. Uh, with respect to mostly what was happening with the Roman Republic and then the um, uh, when it became the Roman Empire. And so history has always been of interest to me, A, because it's fun to read. Um, there are some great stories throughout history. It's, 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 it's entertainment uh, in many, many ways. But also, you know, the lessons from history um, can and often do repeat it, in the same, in very similar patterns over and over again, and uh, I've used that to uh, to uh, my work on uh, analyzing gold. The gold market is you can look at at gold in a historical context, and it does apply what happens to currencies and therefore what role gold plays throughout history. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, especially the, the history, not repeating itself, but rhyming. I actually have that quote written here. I wanted to ask your thoughts about that. I recently read a book, uh, and it's called The Laws of Human Nature. It's written by a guy named Robert Greene, and in it, he talks about a Muslim historian. His name's Aban Khaldun, and I might be butchering that name for people at home, and he talks about history passing through four generational patterns. And he kind of identifies it that each generation, the first, uh, it revolts against the old order. It brings new, fresh ideas. This is the revolutionary generation. Then the generation after that, um, it's sort of seen all this tumultuous change, and it wants to establish an order and calm things down. Then you have the third generation, and that's where they're a bit more pragmatic. They're less connected to the past. And essentially what they do, they become much more individualistic. They become much more materialistic. 
And then there's the fourth, uh, they've lost a sense of society, they lose their beliefs, mm -hmm. um, they become cynical, and they kind of lay the groundwork for the whole thing to repeat with the revolution again. Do you have a view on where we are today? I, I'm not familiar with this. I, I, I'd like to actually look, look up that, uh, that uh, philosopher, uh, but he's absolutely bang on. And there have been other ways of expressing that um, in terms of the cycles, how these cycles take place uh, through, through the generations. And, and the way you described it, I, 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 it's bang on. And it's exactly what happens. And we're, I think, in the fourth generation at the moment, where things are starting to fall apart. You know, when people look at the fall of the Roman Empire, um, you know, they, they, there are a lot of very well-documented reasons why Rome fell. One of the reasons the Roman Empire fell was because of rot, and it was the character of its citizens that started to fall apart. And when, when the character of a nation starts to become corrupt, and that's when, you know, things start to go sideways and, 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 uh, and unscrupulous people take advantage of that, um, that ability to corrupt the population. And I think that character plays a very big part of it. And I think if you look back at, say, the last four generations w with respect to our lifetimes, <clears throat> the depression. You know, that was, you know, people had to work very hard. It was tough. They learned to save. Um, then the post-war years were all about the, you know, succeeding, working hard because the economy was booming. And then you came into the sort of the 70s and 80s when people became individualistic, uh, according to your to your pattern. And materialistic. And materialistic. Well. And then now we're in that post where I think when in the fourth generation where things are starting to decay and fall apart. If you look at the U.S. today, um, and I always use the U.S. The US as, as the prime example of what's going wrong in the world, um, there's so much false information being peddled by all sides for personal gain. And there's, there's a... What we've lost is the ability for people to come together for a common cause. And now it's us against them in every aspect of society. Uh, and I think that this is where, you know, where misinformation comes into play, where corruption is, is at hand, where you can buy politics, you can buy your politicians, which is essentially what, what happened with the Citizens United case. Uh, Supreme Court in, case in the U.S. where you know you can throw any amount of money behind your behind your candidate. Um, that's when things just fall apart, and this is where we're at today. I think that you know we're in that fourth stage. So I agree, and I think that's really exemplified by my my generation, which is the millennial generation, and we kind of grew up uh, without any solid value system, no religion. Um, you know, we grew up sort of in the shadow of 9-11, and you quickly kind of lost the moral um, certainty that sort of America and Western democracies are right and doing the right thing in the world. And I didn't think there's that belief in that. So from a religious perspective, from a, uh, I guess, civic perspective as well. And, you know, it's kind of all fallen apart. But I think 
what I'm seeing now, and we're seeing this with this climate movement, is that I think the stirrings of sort of the next generation, the generation after me, I don't know what they're called, Generation Z, I think. these it is Z, yeah. The children. My daughter's are, a Z. <laughs> so these, these school strikes and stuff. And there's this new, from what I can see, uh, value system very quickly coalescing around climate change and social justice and all these issues that they believe people of the baby boomer generation uh, caused. And then my generation was pretty much, uh, you know, put their Complicit. head in the sand for. <laughs> and uh, And now they're, you know, it's this revolutionary thing. Do you do you get a feel for that? Do you think we're on that cusp? You know, it's interesting. Um, I, and I, as I said, my daughter's Generation Z, and she's very much about, you know, we've had these conversations about your baby boomer generation screwed this up and we're here to fix it. And I, and I admire that, and I think that's wonderful. But, you know, I think that if, throughout my lifetime, I've seen the the new generation wanting to change the world being idealistic. The 60s generation, the, the love right. generation. Um, and the problem is that it, you know, they're very gung-ho when they're young and then they settle into society and having to work for a living and their attitudes do change. They become more conservative, less you know, progressive mm -hmm. uh, as they get older. And I think that that's generally what happens with all of these enthusiastic youth movements, I don't think that that's going to, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change the pattern of what's happened and in the direction we're going in at, at this time because those things have already been set in motion. You know, we're in a very, uh, in a decaying environment uh, that is caused by inequality. Inequality was caused by the elites. It was caused by Wall Street, you know, promoting the Fed to print more money, to bail out the banks after the banks created the problem in the first place. It didn't bail out Main Street. And we've, you've seen the greatest wealth gap in history created over the last 20 years, ever. This is the greatest transfer of wealth that's ever took, taken place. And it was all caused by monetary policy by those in power, those that had the money, the ability to borrow, borrowed, and were able to accumulate additional wealth. The rest of the population has been impoverished. And whenever in history, whenever you get this sort of inequality and wealth gap, that's when societies fall apart. And I think that this is just one more of the issues, you know, that is causing the political divide too, is, is, is the, you know, the difference in um, the, the differing opinions about you know capitalism versus socialism you know and now it's becoming more and more pol polarized as to who's right and who's wrong and the other side is, is the enemy all these are a function of inequality inequality is a function of when a society becomes corrupt and it becomes corrupt very slowly over a period of time before we talk about how to defend for that or help prepare for that do you have a feel for where this is going over the next 10 years or what you think might happen? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, um, and, you know, I, I can't say over the next 10 years. It could be over the next three years, over the next 15 years. I, I can only tell you the direction. The timing is impossible to predict. But I think we're in the beginning of a final washout here that has to take place. And uh, I think that it's, the 
to get us back on track, it's too late now to use any monetary or fiscal policy. We've got a, a, a world that has $250 trillion of debt that has doubled in the last, in the last 10 years, and it's an, a debt bubble ready to burst. And what traditionally happens, and has happened throughout history, you know, I can g give you, you know, examples going back to France, you know, back in the 1700s, er, in the early 1700s, and again in the late 1700s, um, during the French Revolution, where, you know, too much debt caused by government spending and, you know, wars and all these things that cost money, um, then leads to money printing. Money printing leads to collapse, inflation, hyperinflation and collapse, and then you have to start over again. And I, I don't, and I know exactly what's happening in the world today. It's happening here, in Japan and in Europe. We're trying to, we're monetizing debt. We're making the obligations worth less, and eventually they will be worthless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is the path we're on. There is no way to repay that debt. It's out of control. You cannot repay that debt. The only way to get, there's only two ways to get rid of debt. Either you declare bankruptcy, which no nation will ever do, you know, or you do what's been standard practice, which is to inflate it away by printing more money. But when you do that, you eventually destroy the currency. So we're on that path. We're definitely on that path where uh, the U.S. dollar and other paper currencies will be destroyed. And so then there will be have to be some restructuring of the global monetary system and that will happen at some point but not until there is a lot of pain yeah and that pain comes in many many different ways so you know as you talk about this i keep thinking is this going to be like the french revolution does the guillotine have to be wheeled out again is there a way to do this um bloodlessly in your view because there's a lot of people uh with a lot of money and a lot of power entrenched in this system um and a growing number of people who are outside of it and not benefiting from it. Is there a way to smooth that transition, or does it have to be catastrophic? No, it doesn't have to be catastrophic. Unfortunately, history um, tells us that it usually ends up in something that is ugly, and that could be a revolution, it can be a civil war, or it can be simply what a lot of nations have done, is just to um, project their problems to the rest of the world right. by causing, you know, conflict outside of their borders, and it's which is a distraction. Um, and um, but certainly, some form of social unrest is in the cards, and I don't know how it will manifest itself, but it will somehow. And you know, like you know, the, the idea that history doesn't repeat it does rhyme. So I can't tell you which way it's going to play, but it's not going to be pleasant because there's already so much hatred you can just see it it's building up and you know and it's because people are f angry and frustrated on, on all sides and and those that have made done well during the last 20 years one you know they like the system they want to keep it the way it is and you know those that haven't done well you know are going to find a way to express themselves and is this the what is you know, incentivizing movements like Trump coming to power, in your view. these well, this, Trump is a symptom. That's what I mean. Like these frustrated people that, mm -hmm. in their view, did everything they were supposed to do. They got, you know, good blue-collar jobs. They worked hard. They supported their families, and now they're 
you know, in an r- almost hopeless situation, they're yeah. grasping at straws to fix that. Well, that's exactly right. And, and Trump played into that beautifully. He tapped into that sentiment and he made them promises that for the most part he cannot deliver on and probably has no intention of delivering on. But the idea is he, the, the genius was that he tapped into that sentiment and he, he got that right. And so now he has this base that will you know, believe anything he says. And, uh, don't, you know, lies don't matter. It's all about, you know, it's us against them. You know, he's created this idea of the, you know, the, the, the swamp, the elites, mm-hmm. um, uh, fake news, all of the, the any, you know, he's created an enemies list for these people to hate and, and to look to Trump as their savior and protector. And so Trump stokes that fire, and it's going to get, I think it's going to get worse. I, gonna, I think this is an election year, and I don't see this being uh, uh, whatever the outcome is, not going to be pretty. I, you know, I think that it's going to be a very ugly election, and the outcome, even if he loses, will be something like we've never seen before. Because I don't think he wants to go away. Yeah. So, we touched on gold briefly, and I think that ties into this nicely. How are you preparing for this? Well, I think <laughs> you answered the question, it's yeah. gold. Because here it is. Here's the thing. I mean, there are many, you know, and again, I don't know, and no one knows exactly how this will play out. But if I were to be making a bet right now, and I would look, and I, and I was looking at all my options where I put my money as an investor. And I look at, say, the stock market. Um, I would say that the chances of the stock market going down dramatically are much higher than the chances that it's going to go up more. Like, it's, it's asymmetric, mm-hmm. that bet. And so... Why would I invest in the Dow or the S&P when, yes, it could go up a little bit more, absolutely, but the odds are that it's due for a very severe correction. The bond market is, is, is as scary. You know, when you have half of all of the uh, investment-grade bonds, corporate investment-grade bonds, as triple Bs, which is one step above junk, and you have all of this activity in these markets highly levered. One event, and I don't know what that event could be, but one event can unravel the bond market, can unravel the stock market, and there's so much debt that when it does unravel by some event, it's going to be severe. So for those reasons, I wouldn't be there right now. Okay, so I wouldn't put money in, in, in the stock market right now. Um, gold is, <laughs> you couldn't write a script at this moment in time that, I mean, the script is written. I mean, it's golds. It's a perfect storm for gold right now. And it's everything that could possibly be on gold's side as for 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 as an investment is 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 happening, whether it's monetary, geopolitical, trade wars, um, debt, uh, 
stock market overvaluations, all of the reasons, interest rates, money printing, uh, all the reasons why people would want to own gold are firmly in place now. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is going to be the last man standing because I think we are, as Ray Dalio puts it, we're going into a big squeeze. And that big squeeze is that deficits are going to continue to be trillion-dollar-plus deficits. They have to be financed by treasuries. As he's, Trump is pushing to have rates go back down to zero. As rates near zero, who the hell is going to buy those treasuries? Investors are going to be looking to invest their money into things that they believe will provide a higher return. So who's left to buy the treasuries? The Fed. And that's exactly what's happening. That's why QE has started again in the U.S. They'll give you all sorts of reasons why they're doing this $60 billion a month right now, but it's all BS. The fact is that they have to monetize all of this debt, which is not going away. Neither side of, uh, neither party in the U.S. is even debating deficits anymore. It's like, it used to be a hot issue. Now, you know, a trillion dollar deficit, nobody even questions it. That's the last thing that they're debating at the moment. Um, so as this, the squeeze is that as rates near zero, and we're going to go into another recession here, and I predict that rates will go to zero before the next recession, um, the Fed's going to have to print even more and more money to monetize that all that debt that's going to be issued. And that's when gold goes through the roof. And because... What's left then? The U.S. dollar is the last man standing at the moment. And it's o the only reason the U.S. dollar is strong, or one of the main reasons the U.S. dollar is strong, is because its rate of return is slightly higher than the yen or the euro. Okay, mm -hmm. they're, they're at zero or negative rates. Mm -hmm. At least you can get a point yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in U.S. dollar. But that's going to be gone. And when that's gone, what's, there's nothing left. They're just going to print more and more money you can't print gold. And I keep telling people, this is, to me, this is the, the only thing you should be in. You'd be crazy not to own some gold right now. And I'm talking about the physical stuff. So the area that most exemplifies a lot of what you're saying to me is tech. Do you look at tech at all? Just Not really, no. You know, when you see these companies that are worth billions or tens of billions of dollars that make no money and refinance and mm. refinance and refinance... Yeah. To me, that seems like the area that is going to implode first and foremost. It's the sort of tip of the spear, and we're mm -hmm. sort of seeing it with the WeWorks of the world now. And well, you see Tesla. The I mean, even Tesla. Which, and by the way, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, and I wish him all the success in the world because I th I think he was a very bold player, and and you know he really forced the industry to electrify, and I mm -hmm. think that that's great for the world, great for climate change, and all those things. But, you know. <laughs> you know, that share price is, it's overvalued, not because of his genius, it's overvalued because there's so much free money yeah. right now that can chase these things to crazy valuations. Everything's mispriced. All prices have been falsified by 20 years, uh, sorry, 12 years of um, where $25 trillion of new money has been printed worldwide. $25 trillion. It's falsified everything. Nothing. You can't. There's no economic reality anymore in pricing. 
you know where that, okay, you know the experience that drove that home for me? And I, you know, I'm an engineer. I didn't come from a finance background, and it took me a while to really wrap my head around all this. It was walking through my neighborhood. Um, I live in East Vancouver. There's lots of beautiful old heritage homes. They've been there for 100 years or more. And I remember walking through and thinking, like, you know, less than a generation ago, one of these homes would be owned by an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, uh, and it'd be a family home. Today, those homes are cut up into four or five units. Each unit's going for a million dollars plus, and it's it's insane that, mm-hmm. you know, professional people in the city can't buy a house there. And to me, it just shows, you know, the money's worthless. It just, mm-hmm. it's it, it has no value anymore compared to hard assets. Well, it doesn't. And, you know, the, the reason, and the, so when they started printing money in 2000 and eight or nine, um, when the Fed started printing money in the first place, uh, I, at that time, thought we were going to get hyperinflation. And I was wrong, and where the inflation ended up was an asset. It was, became asset inflation instead, and that's mm-hmm. what we've had the last, you know, since, since, since the crash and since the Fed uh, first instituted um, QE. And... Um, there's so much money available right now, and it's only available to those that can up, can that have the assets to borrow, mm-hmm. and they're buying up everything because the banks are giving away money for free. It's like you could. I know lots of very wealthy people. I won't name them obviously, that can borrow money at two percent, and the banks will give them as much as they want, and they go out and they buy, what are they buying? They're buying the stock market. They're buying real estate. They're you know. And that's where it's. That's why this wealth gap has been created in the first place. Money will become worth less and less and less the more and more they print, and that's just that's been repeated throughout history. It started in seventh in the seventh century in China. They were the first to issue paper currency. They did the same thing. They got into war with Mongolia, and uh, they printed too much of it. They flooded the system with printed money, and it collapsed. You know, it's happened, you know, the Romans, you know, Nero did it with the denarius, you know, mm-hmm. d- reducing the silver con- content from almost 95% in over 200 years. By the time it finished, it was like 0.02% silver in the coin. I mean, that was a form of money printing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have paper in then, so they used, they, they used, they, they based, they debased the, the metal value in the coins. As I said, France has done it three or four times since the 1700s, where they've taken their currency to zero. It just... It happens, and it's the same pattern over and over again. And and, and when we went off the gold standard, when, when the U.S. Went, on, went off the gold standard in 71, um, the writing was on the wall. And it, it basically created a moral hazard where, you know, they could print as much of this stuff as they wanted. The U.S. dollars probably lost 60%, 70% of its value since 1971, its purchasing power. Um, and... Now we're getting into into a hyper mode of printing. Now it's you know, and that that's the way it always works. Start slowly, it's like a moral hazards, like a gateway drug. Start slowly, and yeah. then it kind of builds up and builds up, and eventually it just kind of just has this frothy, explosive ending. And that's where I think we're in that phase now. This is, and I've said this before. I think we're in the third and final phase of this gold market that started in 2001, and this will be the one that really that goes through the roof. I know you don't predict gold price. I don't. But you think we're heading towards an all-time high? Oh, we're definitely, and I've said that. I, I, I will say that much. We're going to blow through the old high, which was 1900 in U.S. dollars. If you're at home listening to this, you've never owned gold before, 
how should you approach this? Do you have any thoughts on what part of someone's portfolio they should make up? And again, it depends on really on, on your available capital to invest in. You know, and it's, it's, you know, it's difficult for a lot of people who are struggling just to get by to even think about investing mm-hmm. or, or saving in any form. But if you do have money to invest, um, I, the standard rule up until about 20, 30 years ago was 10% of your portfolio should be gold. That was standard portfolio management rules when I got into the business many, really? many, many years ago. Absolutely. It was, it was at, in the U.S., in Europe. It was a, a, a proper portfolio. had stocks, bonds, and gold. Those were your three investments. We've become very sophisticated. Now, and over the last sort of 30 years, Wall Street's managed to make gold um, seem like an ancient relic that's not necessary because now you have yeah. all these other instruments to hedge your portfolio because gold was considered the hedge. And so I think we're going back to that. When I, th- I would say to anybody, if you have you know an amount of money to invest, make sure 10% is in gold. That is the rule. It's the 10% rule. What about gold equities? Well, that becomes trickier because you have to then understand markets you have to understand analyzing companies and more specifically, more importantly, understand the mining industry and how it works and how mining stocks work. And I'm always reluctant to, you know, to uh, suggest to anybody that they should invest in mining stocks because I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this my whole life, so I, I, I know how to pick a, a mining stock, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but... Uh, um, I would say that, yes, mining stocks are going to play a, a big role in this, as they always have in the past when gold has uh, entered a bull market. But you have to be very careful which ones you pick. And, you know, there are senior gold producers, there are intermediate gold producers, there are junior gold producers, and then there are developers, which have a deposit, but it's not in production. And then you have the explorers, which are looking for deposits. And there are very different risk profiles, and... You know, sure, if you invest in, a, in a, an exploration stock or a developer, you can make a lot of money because, you know, if you get it right, you know. The, the, it goes, yeah. It, it really goes. Um, but I would say for most people to look for, what I would suggest just generally is choose a junior or intermediate producer that has a growth profile, great management and a growth profile. So that then you're capturing not only the rise in the price of gold, but you're capturing the growth potential of that individual company. Right. Um, and that's probably as far as I will go for recommendations. So you've been involved in a lot of mining deals over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, some obviously stand out. Uh, Wheaton River Minerals uh, with you and Ian Telfer that became Gold Corp. Endeavor Financial, uh, Endeavor Mining Corp, and most recently, Leia Gold, which just merged with Equinox. How do you choose the deals that you want to get strongly involved in as opposed to just an anonymous investor or a smaller investor? Management teams. Management teams. It's all about management teams. Um, When we created Wheaton uh, back in 2001, uh, the first person I approached was Ian Telfer, who had... um, and I'd taken a five-year hiatus from from the, the mining business when I started Lionsgate back in 1997. And I remember the day that I resigned from Yorkton, I had lunch already scheduled with Ian Telfer. And 
So I resigned and I went to have lunch with him. I said, listen, I'm no longer the chairman and CEO of Yorkton. Uh, so, you know, this whole mining thing, I'm out of it for now. I'm just mm -hmm. going to retire from it. I said, but if I ever do get back into this business, you'll be the first person I call. And um, so when I, 2001, that's exactly what I did. And I called him and because he was very, very good at what he did. He was an amazing mining executive, and he was, but he was also a great strategic thinker, and he was good at making things happen. He was a deal maker. And so it all starts with management. And the, the reason why Wheaton River, which became Gold Corp, was so successful in the early years was because of Ian Telford. You know, I helped, it was my idea. I got every, everyone together. Uh, I made it happen. I raised the money, put together the uh, underwriting syndicate and all of that, but it was Ian that made it happen. And so it's, it's management. Again, in 2009, when we launched Endeavor Mining, Neil Woodyard. Um, Neil is an amazing mining executive. He's tough, he's smart, he knows his way around the balance sheet, uh, he's a no-nonsense guy, and uh, he executed Endeavor, the Endeavor Mining uh, business plan, which was very similar to the Wheaton River one, mm -hmm. brilliantly. And so then we exited out of Endeavor in 2015 or 16, in 2016, I, I said, Neil, we should do this again because he was, I, you know, they'd taken us out of Endeavor, the, the new, uh, the people that took control of, 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 of Endeavor Mining. So we thought we were free to do whatever we wanted. And I said, let's do it again. Let's and this time, let's do it in Latin America because gold is about to take off. That was a couple of years early. I said, gold's about to take off and let's employ the same business plan as we have before. And that's exactly what Leah Gold was. And as you saw, it just merged with Equinox. Ross Beatty and I had the exact same vision, you know. And he was trying to create a gold mining company as quickly as possible, and so were we. And so we looked at both our companies, and it made sense to bring them together. And Ross is an amazing chairman. Neil's an amazing CEO. And I think that this new Equinox is poised to be a major player. What do you think the importance of is, of size today? It's absolutely important. Because it's different than it once was, right? Way different. You know, the whole investment industry has changed. Uh, stock pickers you know, are not as important as they once were. Size allows you to be you know, part of these uh, ETFs and, uh, and in, in these, uh, in these in index, indices. And, and if you're not in there, the institutions are not buying your your shares, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just that's it's very different than it was, you know, 20 years ago. And so you do size does matter. And it, once you're in the indices and you're in the ETFs, you know, then, you know, you have basically an institutional following. So you talked a little bit about Ian Telfer. You talked a little bit about Neil Woodger. You've backed some great names in the industry, including Robert Friedland early on in his career. And more recently, Brian Pays Braga with Lithium X. What are the qualities you look for in someone that you want to start financing them and, and help put deals together and give them access to capital and all these things? Is there a is there a list? Is it a case by case basis? What are you looking for? Well, I would <laughs> I would never compare Robert Friedland to Brian. Uh, they're, <laughs> no. they're, very, they're very different, uh, very different uh, uh, animals. Um, so Friedland was, 
and listen, he's an interesting guy, and he's very he's been very successful, and uh, I, I I think he's you know he's he's a very smart and successful guy. He's you know he's got his own style, which is is different, but. Um, but what I did learn from Robert, because I was quite young at the time, I was running Yorkton, and he was probably, I don't know, five, maybe 10 years older than me, I can't remember, but um, he, um, watching him operate was amazing. He had the ability to convene people, convince them that something was possible, and put everybody to work to make it happen. He was the probably the best salesman I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. Really, an, an amazing salesman. He, um, you know, if he's selling gold, gold is the greatest thing in the world. If he's selling copper, copper is the greatest thing in the world. And, and he'll convince you of that fact. And so he makes things happen. He takes risks, you know. He believes in, you know, he believes, believes in the drill hole, which has never been my approach to it. I, that's never been my style. But, you know, you got to, you got to, you know, appreciate that he does take risk. Um, you know, he doesn't always deliver, um, but he's been very successful. And I think in, in the long run, if you've been with Robert, you've made money. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but an amazing salesman that had the ability to convene people and get everybody moving in the right direction on his behalf. Brian, on the other hand, Brian is, he was way, obviously, uh, Brian's 31 years old. I met Brian about four years ago, and um, right away recognized that there was something very special about Brian, and he's uh, like really special. And you know, and I've, I've met a lot of people over the years and hired lots and lots of people, and there was something about him that I thought was interesting enough to back. And he came to me with the Lithium X concept, and it was just a concept. He had no actual plan. He said. We should be in lithium. Let me do it. Uh, let me build a company, and will you please back me? And he did the rest. <laughs> he, yeah. and, he and Paul, Mat and he brought on, uh, brought on Paul Matizic, and he and Paul executed that brilliantly. And watching him do that in the first sort of 18 months that I knew him, I was very, very impressed. And so he's a guy, someone that has very strong character, um, wants to learn, wants to be a good person, wants to succeed, wants to help others. Um, and I admire that in him, and I think he's going to do very well in life. Would you consider yourself a salesman? Yeah, when I, have, when I believe in something, but I really, really have to believe in it. Um, and I think that goes for almost, well, I shouldn't say almost everybody, but um, I can't sell something unless I'm passionate about it and I have to really believe in it. And that's why, you know, I'm, I can tell the gold story so well because I really believe it. Like, I, 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 in every fiber of my body, I have studied gold inside out and I've watched it. I've studied history. I, you know, I know almost every aspect of what of the things that impact gold. And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, writing about it, reading about it, speaking about it. And it's something that it's a, it's a conviction that I really really have. So, yeah, I can sell that <laughs> till the cows come home. But if you know, I can't. I, I'm not very good at. That's why I was never really good as a stock promoter, mm -hmm. as someone that could. Because it, it it's it's hard. It's, it's you know it's hard to do. Yeah, it's hard to 
sort of have that tunnel vision and sort of sell the dream and ignore all the potential risks and things that can go wrong, especially in a mining stock when they're tend to outnumber the things that can go right. And that's true. And, you know, and, and, and it's hard for me to do that. Yeah. So am I a good salesman? I, I, do, I don't really look at myself as a salesman. I don't. And I know a lot of people are way better at it than I am, like Ross Beatty mm-hmm. can sell his company vision much better than I ever could. Um, certainly Robert Friedland can and others. So, but, uh, you know, I have, you know, I have to really believe in something before I so you've worked in a range of industries, uh, brokerage firm, mining, entertainment, and we're going to talk about philanthropy and food after this. What do you think is the skill set you bring to these industries uh, that that you're able to hop from thing to thing to thing? Well, I don't know about the strength it, it, that I bring, but I can certainly tell you why I do it. I'm curious. I, you know, I, I like to learn new things. I'm, I'm fascinated by learning. It's, mm-hmm. it's, been spending my whole life learning new things and whenever I get into something sometimes it starts out as a hobby that then turns into a business and you know the movie business was kind of like that Um, what most people don't know is that I started uh, in the movie business back in the mid 80s while I was still at Yorkton with a uh, small company that we created called the International Movie Group and it was based in Los Angeles, and that's where I learned the business. Mm-hmm. I did that for seven years and really learned the business, traveled around to all the film markets, learned the art of not just um, the production, budgets, international sales, you know, how these things, how the, the economics of the movie industry worked at that time for independent filmmakers. And so by the time I got around to Lionsgate, you know, it was something that I'd already dabbled in and knew I had it, you know, basic understanding of, of the industry um and i loved it because i loved movies i mean i was since i was a kid i was like i've watched everything you know i i used to love watching movies so it was a, it was a passion food is the same thing I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a food fanatic so that's why i created olive oil you know and i have the number one olive oil in the world it's rated number one you know it wins all of the awards well most of them anyways in most countries when when we enter it it's really a fabulous product, and I, th- we, we put so much love into it because we wanted to create the best. Mm-hmm. And so that was a hobby. It's now a business. Uh, my music studio, you know, I have a music studio, and, you know, we write songs and work with artists and, um, you know, help them develop their, their, their song portfolios, sometimes produce their songs. And that started out as just a lark, that I was writing poetry, which then turned into uh, this songwriting exercise with Elton John that I bought in a in a um, in a, an auction, uh, one of his big galas, which I did three times with him. We wrote three songs with Elton John just for fun. They never got released, but I still have them. But uh, that you know made me think about songwriting and how interesting that was. And then I started working with composer producers to explore that side of my hobby and now we have a music studio in north vancouver and we work with artists and we try and make it a business how do you think people cultivate this sense of curiosity i mean i know so many people who aren't interested in anything i know you i think you either are i don't think you cultivate anything you're either designed that way it's innate curious or you're not when i was a kid you know we didn't have a lot of money my father bought 
you know, there were in those days they used to have these door-to-door salespeople that used to come by and sell encyclopedia sets. So he bought a um, which one was it? The Americana encyclopedia set for 200. I think he paid 200 dollars for it. And he put it. it I, I I moved my bedroom to the basement because I wanted to be independent. And so he had the encyclopedia set down there in my room. Mm-hmm. That's where the only place that we could keep it. I remember, and I was never very interested in school. I was actually quite disinterested in school. I didn't like it. I didn't care. I was failing everything. I was just, just one of those, I just, there was nothing there that was in, interesting to me. But at nighttime, I would sit in my room and go through each of the, from A to Z, each of the volumes and just flip the pages and read and read. And, and it was just, I was fascinated by everything, history, science, you know, but I, it was, I was looking at things that interested me. Mm-hmm. And so that curiosity has always helped. And, and it's actually intensifying as I'm getting older. Like I'm, I'm wanting to do more things now. I mean, learn, you know, quantum physics has been something that's consumed me for the last number of years. And, and you know, now I'm having conversations with, you know, important physicists around the world about doing certain things. And, you know, because it's just a fascinating subject matter. So I think this is a good segue into the next part of our conversation. Um, you've stated quite publicly lately that you're going to be stepping back from your business interests and more focused on philanthropy and giving your money away and getting more involved in that. When I started researching your philanthropy, I <laughs> I think I could have had another list of questions here about the initiatives you've been involved in and the projects you've taken on. But I wanted to start with what was your first sort of philanthropic experience? When was the first time you were less focused on making money and more on giving it? And what sparked this interest? Yeah, I don't think, and again, I've been asked this often, and there, uh, there was probably only one moment in time where it became very profound. It was a profound decision I made at a moment in time, but it was something that kind of built up very slowly over the years. You know, I started my foundation in 1997, um, and, you know, I gave locally. I just uh, was very under the radar, and I gave to a lot of uh, organizations in downtown Vancouver, in the East End, downtown East Side, the Food Bank, and others. But I did that very quietly, and mm-hmm. I just did that for many years. And then I met Bill Clinton, and I met him in 2005. And uh, he had just, you know, he had, had started his foundation a few years before, the Clinton Foundation. Anyways, we became friends. And we traveled around the world, and I supported a lot of what he was doing, specifically his HIV-AIDS initiative, which I gave a lot of money to in 2005 and 2006. And that was a brilliant um, initiative that uh, they came up with that uh, created affordable uh, antiretroviral drugs for the, for the developing world, which in those days pharmaceutical companies were pricing the drugs too high and, and the developing world couldn't afford it and millions of people were dying of AIDS. And so he created this uh, approach, which I won't get into, but it, anyways, I funded that, and, um, or at least the, the initial stages of it. And it was very successful. I think we, you know, that, you know, and we never talk about this, but that saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people were able to get onto the life-saving drugs. And so that was my initial thing with Bill Clinton. And then in 2007, I came up with an idea. And I pitched him on it. And he bought into it. And that was the creation of the Clinton-Justra Enterprise Partnership, which was to alleviate poverty in the developing world 
through innovative by innovative means in a sustainable way. That was the concept. Okay, and it took many years. I dedicated a hundred million dollars to that initiative. I pledged a hundred million, uh, and we've spent a lot of that already, uh, like well over half. Um, and to find innovative ways to bring people out of poverty and keep them out of poverty in a sustainable way. And again, go, we tested a lot of different models over the years and tried a lot of different things. And finally, a few years back, we settled on the farmer services model. And very quickly, I'll just explain what it is. We go into communities and uh, in mostly these days, we've done it in Africa and Indonesia and India, but we're now focused on Latin America and the Caribbean. And so we'll go into a, a, a community and we'll look at what the farmers produce. And then we look at what an end buyer might want in, at scale, like a large institutional buyer, like yeah. a, a supermarket chain um, or, or some other, you know, Starbucks. There are all sorts of end buyers that need access to certain product, produce, fish, but cannot purchase it directly, don't have the means to purchase that product directly from small farmers. And most of the world is agrarian, and, it's, and they're all small individual farmers that just sustain themselves, and they mm -hmm. sell what they can for a little bit of money, but they don't have the scale, the quality controls, you know, to be able to deliver and it's, so what we did is we reverse engineered the demand we went to these large buyers and we said how much of this would you need and on what terms and at what quality standards and they give us all of the parameters we reverse engineer that demand all the way back to the small farmers we organize them into larger groups of co-ops we provide financing we provide the inputs training technology and allow them to produce at the quantity and quality levels that's determined by the end buyer. Then we create the supply chain distribution system to get it from A to Z, get that product from A to Z. And that model is something that we developed. It mm -hmm. took us years. And now we finally have proven that it works over the last few years. And now we're starting to get a lot of different potential end buyers in different countries in that region coming to us, asking us to design a pro program for them because they all want to support the small farmers. Right. They want to have a social aspect to their business, but they couldn't do it directly without us creating that model to make it happen. That's, to me, when I launched that in 2007, I, in a public announcement, I said that would be my life's work. And I made a very big commitment. I said, this will be my life's work. Is you know, trying to alleviate poverty at scale. Because this is what I do. Once that model works, and you can take it everywhere else and apply it almost anywhere, you can scale it and replicate it, and that was the objective. Test it first, make sure it works, make, prove it, and then go and, now we're at that point where we're taking it to other places and scaling it. And that, to me, is if we can address poverty by creating these models and bringing in new partners, um, that would be a, an amazing achievement. And so just last week, we finally spun out, <coughs> after three years of um, attempting to, to, uh, to take 
that initiative out of the Clinton Foundation. We took it out last week. Now it's under my foundation. It's called Accesso now. We just rebranded it, and we're going to continue. It's now directly under my foundation. It was always, it was always my team of people working at the Clinton Foundation offices and with just my funding going into it, right. but now it's actually been transferred out and it's underneath my foundation. And where is this working today? Um, today, Colombia, Haiti, Salvador, Dominican Republic. Where do you plan on rolling it out to in the future? Like, we're looking at uh, focus on the Caribbean mm -hmm. and Latin America. So just pick your countries. So at the end of the day, when this is all inputted and said and done, are these supply chains and the, is it self-sustaining? Yes. Does it need, it doesn't need any additional? The idea was to set them up as social enterprises, meaning that they're for-profit enterprises within a charitable foundation but they're meant to generate a profit, and they do generate a profit. And so if we ever sell those enterprises, which as we scale them, the idea is to sell them only to take that money. We can never take it out of the foundation. We just have to redeploy that money to some a new one. So the idea is to s recycle these within the foundation, and if we ever sell out or take money off the table, we would just deploy that money into a brand new mm -hmm. initiative. When, when I look across the different industries and philanthropic uh, sort of initiatives you've taken, a lot of them are high risk, high reward. Uh, mining, entertainment, uh, this initiative you just described, they require a lot of capital up front um, with no certainty that it's going to work out. <laughs> is this, okay. Yeah, and what's uh, the problem with that? <laughs> I've, got two, I've got two questions. So is this... Is this a type of business that you are naturally attracted to, do you think? Well, or risk? High risk, high reward opportunities. Yeah, of course. But it's, it's, it's not that I'm attracted to high risk. I'm attracted to creating new things. I like the idea of creating something new. And that's always risky. Of course. By nature, it's risky. But I'm just saying that what, what's attractive about it is that you're creating something that wasn't there before. And that's fun. Now, listen, sometimes it's tough and sometimes it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. A few times it doesn't work. And I mean, it can really be nerve-wracking, you know, very stressful. And I've been through some very stressful times in my life where things weren't working. But that's, you know, I guess that's the fun of it. How do you choose the projects? And beyond curiosity, um, is it, are you very analytical in it or do you get a feel for the people that are involved? Or you know, I'm, what's a, I'm a feel guy. Yeah? No, you... you <laughs> By the way, I'm not recommending this as an approach to business because it's worked for me. I don't suspect it will work for m most people because it is kind of a backwards way of doing things. But almost everything that I've done has been on gut feel. It's just like I look at something and go, well, that's interesting. I'm going to try that. And then I jump in and I start. And then I figure it out. And sometimes that might seem backwards. And at times, maybe I should have done a little bit more research, but I got it done. And, you know, most times it works. But it is, I, you know, and I've had, I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, obviously we do, when we do, a, you know, say a mining deal, we'll obviously do a lot of due diligence. Mm -hmm. whatever. But when I think of something new that, you know, that, 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 that's new to me, I usually jump in and then figure it out. You've got a lot of rich friends. Some. 
What would you say is the common cause that keeps people out of charity or philanthropy? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, it can be a lot of things, and I think a lot of people are just too lazy to think about it. That's number one. Like it's, They're so focused on making money that they never take the time to really think, you know, how can I alleviate suffering elsewhere? Like it, they just don't, they're in a bubble. Mm-hmm. They're in their own little bubble and it's n- there's no malice in their part. They're just not bothered to think about it. Okay. I think that that's probably the biggest thing. Cause I think most, most people are good people. And I, and I know for a fact that if you take any person, even people that never think about philanthropy and you place them in a situation where they see people suffering, refugees, let's say, um, extreme poverty, homelessness, all the things that I've been involved in, and they actually see it firsthand, their wallets open up. They just weren't bothered to look in the first place. And I think that that's the biggest problem. I think, you know, most of us do live in a bubble. You know, look, look around. You know, it's easy to just forget as you're looking around here, this view. It's easy to forget that there are a lot of people in the world that are suffering, that are starving, dying, you know, war, conflict, you know, homelessness, it's, you know, disease. I mean, it's just, we forget because we live in a bubble. So you kind of need that direct exposure to develop the empathy to I, I think to care, it, hel- right? it helps a lot. And, yeah. You know, one of the little tricks that I use is when I, when I get involved in something, I take people on trips and I expose them to, you know, whether it's disaster relief in Puerto Rico, which I did with all hands and heart, or Peru, or whether it's refugees in Lesbos or in Turkey or in Jordan. Um, take people with the means to write a check <laughs> with you. It's, it helps. It works. It's, it's called the, the hand-to-wallet reflex. It stimulates that hand-to-wallet reflex. It does, because, you know, if you see people suffering, man, you, it's, it's hard to turn away. Yeah. You have to be made of stone. Would you have any advice for people who are listening to this and, you know, maybe have never given to charity or want to give uh, to a cause more effectively where they should start? Well, to give is easy. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, it's, it, you know, you can have, you can play two roles in, 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 in the charitable game you can be involved directly where it's you're in there participating with your time and effort skill set whatever it is you do or you can just write a check i think for most people it's easy to just write a check and by the way that's very welcome too you know not everybody should be like you know getting their hands dirty and you know that's fine i don't care about that but write a check <laughs> you know if you don't have the time at least do that much and i, I you know i I get so many people because I do a lot of things around the world. I'm involved in so many different aspects of philanthropy and people see what I do and they go, I get a lot of people going, Frank, can I help somehow? What can I do? Can I volunteer? That's the biggest offer I get. Can I volunteer? And my reaction is no. Not unless you're willing to take six months a year out of your life, go somewhere learn something don't just get in the way of people because you want a photo op right you know it's it's like that it's to me is the biggest frustration is people how can i help yeah okay retire from whatever you're doing and go (laughs) if you really want to do it but most people won't won't do that they you know they think that they if they go somewhere and you know 
hand out bottles of water or whatever, and that they're actually helping, but they're not. They're getting in the way of people that are actually there full time <laughs> trying to do a job. And it's kind of a form of tourism. It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hate to say it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, I call it the photo op. It's yeah. like, you know. Okay. Do we have time to talk about food? Sure. I have a quote from you. Um, it's that you have a passion for food and it's better than sex unless you're a vegan. <laughs> I knew that would come back to haunt me. <laughs> I have just, you, I just have went you ever vegan. thought that? <laughs> well, I just went vegan starting January 1st. I watched that uh, documentary, Game Changers. Yeah. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. It's, I'll tell you, if you watch it, 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 will, it, it might change your mind about plant-based diets. Anyway, so I watched it, and I went, starting January 1st, I went, became a vegan. Um, and I don't think, it's been a little bit, it's been a month. I don't think I miss anything, to be honest. Like, I, I don't miss not having chicken and fish and meat and dairy and all those things. Um, and I'm going to try it for six months and see how I feel. But I don't sacrifice the quality of my food. Like, so now I've got to think when I make, because I, I love to cook. Like, I love cooking for my family. I love cooking for my friends. It's always big big groups of people. I cook on weekends where I can take the entire day to spend in the kitchen, you know. So now I'm trying to create new dishes that are vegan. But still, they have to be tasty. You know? And so I'm improvising. And I've so far, I've been pretty lucky. The dishes I've come up with that are vegan are really delicious because I've tweaked them. I've done things to them to make them... You know, feel a little bit more meaty than just vegetables. But I love food. I absolutely love food. You have a olive oil company, mm-hmm. Domenica Fiore. Am, am I saying that right? Domenica Fiore. It's named after my mother. You have a f- food publisher, I guess, a modern farmer. Magazine, yeah. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Not anymore. I, I dabbled in a few other things, but those are the two that are left. So when I was reading this uh, and reading about this, and this was uh, a part of your life that I was less familiar with, it sounds to me like you have a strong connection to food and where your food comes from. Um, you know, I'd never really experienced that before, and I probably should have. My grandparents are farmers. My sister is a inner city farmer, Fresh City Farms in Toronto. She's the farm manager there. But I never experienced it until... A couple months ago, I went to Tofino, and we went uh, with some friends, and we went chanterelle picking in the woods there, and we kind of brought it back. And we sure made... it was chanterelles. I think so. I, <laughs> I survived to tell the tale, so okay. it's a good sign. Um, but we, you know, we made a risotto, and it was, and it was really, really cool to do that. I never really thought about that before. Is this something you grew up with, or is yes. it something you developed oh, over no, time? Absolutely. Yeah? Okay, so I came from an Italian family, an Italian immigrant family. Um, my parents had a massive garden. They grew everything. We grew up on the Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet is vegetables, fruit, fish, nuts, and olive oil. That's basically the Mediterranean diet. It's been around for thousands of years. It's the healthiest diet in the world, bar none. So I grew up with that. You know, we always had fresh vegetables, always. You know, my mom used to can and freeze. Mm -hmm. So we grew up with that. uh, we never really had junk food in our home. You know, we, we, you know, I used to go to my friend's place. You know, there was lots, lots of processed food, junk food. That just didn't happen at my house. So we grew up with the idea of healthy food. And then what happened was in my early 20s, I decided to take up cooking. I just, my mom was a great cook. Mm-hmm. So I took some of her recipes and, you know, tried to make them. And over the years, I, you know, changed them, improvised them, ex- then expanded my, you know, my menu line. And now it's... 
and I realized how much fun it is to cook with people in the kitchen. It becomes a an event. And if you haven't done it, I think much more fun than going out is to invite people to your home, open up a couple of bottles of wine, have everybody hang around the kitchen, and cook and make a great meal. It is so much better than going out. And I do this all the time. So my passion for food is because I'm always experimenting to see where I can find a new recipe that I that it's just going to blow my mind. And, and then I test it on people. And if I get a great reaction, then I know that goes into the repertoire. Yeah. And what are you trying to do with the magazine? Is this a way to share that with yeah, people? Yeah, no, it's the, yeah, the whole, because... I, I helped launch, I was, it was my money to launch the magazine many, many years ago, and now I own it 100%. I used to have a partner in it. And the whole concept was to tap into the food movement. The idea about understanding where your food comes from, trusting your food source, and understanding every aspect of our connection to food. That was the whole premise behind the magazine and it still is now we've evolved now that we're looking at issues that are food related climate change immigration food security health so you know we're we're looking to kind of evolve the magazine to become a platform for food related issues that are important to society okay so we're coming up on time now um and before i did this interview i asked a couple friends you know, what they'd ask you if they had time. And the one question I got a few times was, you know, if Frank was between 25 or 35, what would he be doing today? If you were starting out your career, you hadn't made any real money, where would you be focused? Tough question. And I'll tell you why. And I'm, and, you know, I've had that question put to me in different ways. And it's like, what advice would you give us if, if you, you know, at, at our age, blah, blah, blah. And so I have two things to say about that. First of all, that I don't like giving advice to the younger generation because I never took advice. <laughs> I, I didn't listen to anybody. I marched to my own drum, and um, it worked. And had I, thinking back, had I listened to what the older, more established people were saying to me and, t and suggesting that I do, I would have never achieved anything. Yeah. They, every, you know, people, here's the, the, the crazy thing about human nature. Once you've established yourself in something that works for you and a disruptor comes in with a new idea that is different than your approach to your success, your natural reaction would be to go, no, that's not doable. You shouldn't do it because it makes you feel uncomfortable. Right. Okay, and so I had so many people telling me I couldn't do this, couldn't do that when I was in my Yorkton days, whether it was opening up the European offices, which I spent seven years doing, um, whether it was creating a mining team, which had never been done before in Canada, it was a sort of a London concept. Um, all the things that made Yorkton so great, because it became a very profitable or, or, uh, investment bank, were ideas that I had to push and the people going, it can't be done, it can't be done. And I had to push. Lionsgate is the classic example. <laughs> and people were almost right about it because I almost blew that thing up in the early days. But everybody told me it couldn't be done. 
couldn't be done. You know, what, you crazy? No one's created a studio in the last 70 years that survived and, and flourished. Yeah. They, they were either all, they either all went bankrupt or were taken over. Where did you get the idea for it? Was it just something you wanted to do? You know, I just finished, uh, I'd retired from York in December of 96 with no plan. I just, I was 39 and I decided that I, I was sick of the business. I was just sick of the investment bank because mm-hmm. I'd been in it 17 years and I was just tired and I didn't want to do it anymore. It was just a headache. It was managing people and I just couldn't take it anymore. So once it, when I left, I didn't have a plan. I was like thinking, okay, I'm just going to take my time, figure things out. And then four months, and I can, maybe it was four or five months later, I thought, you know, I really like movies. I used to want, I, we created a small movie company once before yep. in the mid-80s. Canada doesn't have a major studio. I mean, the original vision was this was going to be a Canadian-based studio that kind of mimicked some of what was happening in Hollywood. And I said, that was the vision that I was selling. I'm going to create a Canadian-based Hollywood-style movie studio that is not reliant on um, government funding, you know, telefilm and all the things. Yeah, you know, yeah. that I, I wanted to do something that was commercial commercially viable and everybody told me I was crazy and that I was you know you know who do you think you are you know a mining guy coming I had that so much and you know I made some mistakes early on which almost imploded the business I had to keep that company alive with my own money I had to make payroll twice out of my own pocket we had huge you know staff anyway so but people were saying you know you shouldn't do that it can't be done um, <laughs> we're going to create a major gold mining company, 2001. That was our, we went on and told people that we're going to take this shell that had $20 million in it. Yep. And we're going to turn this into a major gold mining company. And we went around, and gold is going, gold, which was 250, 300 an ounce. We were, Frank Holmes and I were doing a tour of brokers and institutions here and in the U.S., not to promote. This was before we launched Wheaton River to promote gold. And we were just getting people in a room going, this is our view on gold. This is why gold is going to go up. I was promoting my pieces on gold just, just to it, tell yeah. the story about gold. And people were laughing at us. Not laughing, but they were going, ah, you're, you know, you're just a deal junkie. You know, you're saying this because you want gold to go up. And, I mean, and this, it can't be done. It can't be done. Well, guess what? We did it. <laughs> so I... And so going back to your question, I'm sorry, I digress there. I'm really reluctant to give young people advice, and everybody should find their own path because at the end, today is very different than when I was 25 years old. Yeah, very different. It's a different environment. I wouldn't start out as a stockbroker today. That's the last place I would start out. I think the game is that's commoditized now. It's not. It's not. It's not what it was when I got in. There's the opportunity's different. It's not the same, and so you know, my experience was my experience. The only advice I would give is very general. It's like find something that you passionately believe in. If you're doing it strictly for the money, I, I think that's the wrong approach. And I mean that because even in my Yorktons, sure, I wanted to be rich, but I had this vision I wanted to build an, a, a big investment bank firm. I was working hard to build the firm. It was, my, it was going to be how I showed people that you know, I was successful. It wasn't 
size of my bank account was how can I make Yorkton respectable, yeah. big, and profitable? And I think, th and I had a passion for it. I really worked it hard. That's all I did for many years. And it's the same thing. You have to really go out there and do something you believe in. And I know that may not be the answer that people are looking for because everybody's looking for a secret sauce. It doesn't exist. I can't map out what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. But I can tell you, if you find something you truly believe in and just work hard, you will succeed. You will. It kind of sounds like a combination of passion and like a, like you're paying attention to the zeitgeist of the time almost. Which you have to. Because if you miss, timing's everything in life. So if you, if you miss that, what is the opportunity? That's why I always start at the macro. When I, when I look at the world, I always start from a macro view, mm -hmm. which is exactly the Ray Dalio approach to investing. That's why Bridgewater is so successful. Is he starts from a macro view and then works down to a strategy, an investment strategy. Most people, you know, people that are just stock pickers are missing the, pic the bigger picture. And so I always start with a bigger picture. So what's the opportunity? Gold, I just gave you, you know, the whole thing on gold. And so that's looking at starting the macro opportunity. Then you work all your way down to what stock are you going to pick now that you believe that gold's going to go up, okay? Mm -hmm. So, and again, so with the food movement, which was something that we thought, okay, you know what? People care. This is, and no one, there, there, there was no magazine that addressed those people that were like, had a fantasy about being a farmer, you know, but were living yeah. in an urban environment, but you know, wanted to be out there, you know, in, with nature, growing their own food. And to they wanted a connection to food. So, you know, it was tapping into a sentiment that was happening that we saw. And I think that you can say that for, you know, you know the, the movie part of it, um, when we launched Lionsgate, and, I, and it's not the Lionsgate that you know today, but the original plan for Lionsgate, Lionsgate Films, which was the best asset that I had in, in, in the company when we launched it in 1997, it saw an opportunity. The opportunity was that uh, Merrimax, which was Harvey Weinstein, had just been taken over by Disney. Mm -hmm. Merrimax had been the dominant player in the small independent film product in, in, in production and distribution of the sort of non-commercial, independent, usually edgy content of independent film. And so we, when they vacated, because when Disney bought Merrimax, it left a vacuum. And we jumped in and we said, okay, we're going to be that producer distributor for small, independent, non-large, non non-studio films. Yeah. And that, that was the opportunity. We just saw it, and we filled it. And then, by the way, Lionsgate Films was, the for a long time, the most important part of what is Lionsgate Entertainment. Okay. Well, Frank, I've had you for over an hour now, and I know you're a busy guy, so I want to be respectful of your time, but thank you very much for taking the moment to sit down today and go through all this. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now. Mm -hmm.